The small town of Camden, South Carolina, is the oldest inland town in the state. It was a tiny backcountry settlement for 25 years until Joseph Kershaw arrived in 1758 and brought new industry to the town. It soon became a key trading post along the rivers and roads that connected Charleston on the coast to Charlotte, North Carolina. It adopted the name of Camden, and it was recently verified as the first town or city in America to use the name. The name honored Charles Pratt, the first Earl of Camden. Pratt was a lawyer, judge, and politician in Britain who generally opposed the taxes that were levied on the British colonies in America after the French and Indian War. As such, he became a champion to many in the colonies, even if his stance waffled from time to time. There are now 18 communities named Camden in the United States. Twenty years after Joseph Kershaw began building up the town of Camden, South Carolina, Kershaw's Grand Mansion was the headquarters of British General Charles Cornwallis. On August 16, 1780, the British Army under Cornwallis routed the American Southern Army under General Horatio Gates. The British controlled the town of Camden, which was now one giant field hospital for the hundreds of wounded who streamed in from the battlefield a few miles north of town. After two years of heavy fighting and then a year-long stalemate in the north, the focus of the war shifted to the south. The British captured the key port cities of Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia, and then expanded their reach inland to try to dominate the region. American Commander-in-Chief George Washington had lost his first Southern Army after the capture of Charleston. He lost his second, including some of his best soldiers, the veteran fighters from Maryland and Delaware, at the Battle of Camden. More than 200 Americans died in the pine trees north of Camden. Hundreds more were wounded. Hundreds more were captured. And still more had escaped the battlefield and spent weeks working their way up to American bases in North Carolina. The catastrophe at Camden had begun when more than a thousand militiamen on the American line broke ranks and ran shortly after the British started their attack. Maryland Colonel Otho Holland Williams did not mince words when he wrote a letter to his friend Alexander Hamilton, who was on George Washington's staff. We were truly unfortunate and completely routed. The infamous cowardice of the militia of Virginia in North Carolina gave the enemy every advantage over our few regular troops, whose firm opposition and gallant behavior have gained them the applause of our successful foes as well as of our runaway friends. Williams' depiction was technically accurate, but his criticism was probably a little extreme. The regular troops whom Williams referred to were the soldiers of the 1st Maryland Brigade. They were battle-hardened veterans, even though they had performed with uncommon valor when they were raw recruits. It was still a tall order to expect brand new, untrained, inexperienced militiamen to do the same when faced with British troops who were charging with bayonets. After the battle, a collection of Virginia militiamen wrote a letter to their state legislature to explain the situation. We were marched almost night and day and kept on half allowance of flour for eight or ten days before the battle. From these circumstances, and being wholly unacquainted by military discipline, which we had not time to learn, greatly exhausted by fatigue at that hot season, dispirited for want of rest or diet, 
and panic-struck by the noise and terror of a battle which was entirely new to most of us. We, amongst others, officers and privates, were so unhappy as to abandon the field of battle. Even if it was hard to lay too much blame at the feet of the militiamen, the result of the battle didn't change. Most of the American Southern Army was gone. The soldiers who were alive and free and still fit to fight were scattered around the landscape. The Americans needed a complete restart. They would begin with new leadership. Then they would find inspiration from an unexpected victory in the rugged wilderness of the West. Then they would form a new strategy that would help them win the battle that would truly turn the tide of the war. From Black Barrel Media, Q Code, and the historic Camden Foundation, this is Mission History. I'm Chris Wimmer, and this is the story of the American Revolution with a focus on the soldiers from both sides who fought at the critical battle of Camden, South Carolina. This is Episode 6, Reversal of Fortune. This podcast is brought to you by the historic Camden Foundation, and we pose the question, what makes a hero? Courage, honor, sacrifice, a willingness to lay down one's life for a greater cause. More than 240 years ago, thousands clashed in a pine forest in the sweltering South Carolina summer during the American Revolutionary War. Hundreds made the ultimate sacrifice. Go to Camden, South Carolina to visit the hallowed ground of the Camden battlefield. Walk the trails that were used by regiments from Maryland and Delaware England and Scotland, and more. The historic Camden Foundation interprets revolutionary history in cooperation with the Revolutionary War Visitor Center. Experience hands-on history at their 100-acre colonial town site. See the battlefield, the Longleaf Pine Preserve, the Kershaw House, where British General Charles Cornwallis made his headquarters, and more. Go to historiccamden.org to plan your visit and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Historic Camden Foundation. September 1780, North Carolina. Major General Horatio Gates, whom many believed should replace George Washington as overall commander, was fighting to restore his reputation and rebuild his army. The circumstances and the outcome of the Battle of Camden made it easy for people to say he intentionally fled the battlefield when the going got tough. The situation was more nuanced than that, but critics used it against him. Talk of his removal grew in the North, even as he pieced together a new army in the South. Between 700 and 800 Continental soldiers from Maryland and Delaware had escaped the Camden battlefield and straggled into North Carolina. The Marylanders were fortunate that four key officers survived to continue to lead them. Brigadier Generals William Smallwood and Mordecai Gist, Colonel Otho Holland Williams, and Lieutenant Colonel John Eager Howard. Smallwood and Howard were singled out for bravery during the Battle of Camden, and Howard led a group of about 80 soldiers to safety in the days after the fight. Gates reorganized the units, added new troops and officers, and prepared to defend against the oncoming British army. 
In the aftermath of the battle, the door was wide open for British General Charles Cornwallis to lead his army north to Charlotte and continue his conquest of the Carolinas. But he waited in Camden for three critical weeks after the battle, which allowed at least a small American fighting force to reassemble. When Cornwallis finally started marching, it took him another two weeks to reach Charlotte. He made it without incident, but a threat loomed in the West. West of Charlotte was a kind of badland region of North Carolina and South Carolina. It was hilly and forested as it rose toward the southern end of the Appalachian Mountains. Out there, volunteers from areas that became Tennessee, Kentucky, Western Virginia, and Western North Carolina were sometimes called over-mountain men, and Cornwallis wanted to protect against them. There was some irony in Cornwallis's next move. He instructed Major Patrick Ferguson to lead a column of local volunteers who were loyal to Great Britain to push back the over-mountain men. Ferguson was a major with the 70th Regiment of Foot before he was reassigned to the 71st, Fraser's Highlanders. He was 36 years old. He was a lifelong soldier from Aberdeenshire, Scotland, but he never actually served with the 71st. Ferguson had proven himself during his first two years of fighting in America, and General Henry Clinton had assigned Ferguson the task of building a loyalist militia force to supplement the British Southern Army. Cornwallis ordered Ferguson to take his militiamen west to intercept rebel forces in the area and then protect the flank while the army continued its march into North Carolina. To the west lay the Great Smoky Mountains, the southern end of the Appalachian Range. And the irony was that Major Ferguson would be fighting some of his own countrymen. Those mountains were populated by people who were largely from Scotland and Ireland. Many came from the Scottish Highlands, like Ferguson, and they transplanted their traditions and ideals to the mountains of Eastern America. They were fiercely independent. They wanted no interference from government of any kind, whether it was the new American concept or the old British monarchy. They adapted their ancient whiskey recipes to fit ingredients in America. And, just as important, they brought their music. The style of music that we call bluegrass today evolved out of the old traditions of the Irish and Scottish settlers who populated the Appalachian Mountains in the mid-1700s. American cavalry commander Henry Lee, known as Light Horse Harry Lee, and the father of Confederate Civil War General Robert E. Lee, called the Overmountain Men a race of hardy men who were familiar with the use of the horse and the rifle, stout, active, patient under privation, and brave. In October 1780, it was their time to join the fight. Major Ferguson issued an order for the people of the area to stop their opposition to the British Army, or he would, quote, march over the mountains, hang their leaders, and lay their country to waste with fire and sword. The threat did not have the effect that Ferguson intended. Several American militia units in the region joined together to oppose Ferguson's army. The local militias were led by men with old-world names like Campbell, McDowell, Lacey, and Shelby. The Overmountain men were joined by a South Carolina militia unit commanded by Colonel James Williams. They gathered 900 fighters who were the most fit for battle, 
and set out to confront Ferguson's column of 1,000 Loyalist militiamen. Ferguson learned of the movement of the American militia and decided to fortify a hilltop just inside the South Carolina border. The hill was called King's Mountain. The Americans discovered Ferguson's position and surrounded the hilltop. In the early afternoon of October 7, 1780, the rebel force crept quietly closer and prepared for an attack. According to the legend, the leaders told their men to act individually. Once the fight started, each man should be his own officer and attack as best he could. William Campbell, one of the prominent leaders, supposedly told his men to, quote, shout like hell and fight like devils, which might have been the origin of the frightening rebel yell that would echo across battlefields of the Civil War 80 years in the future. Someone fired the first shot and the battle was on. Dr. David Ramsey, a South Carolina surgeon and politician during the war, was one of the earliest historians of the American Revolution. He dedicated nearly a decade after the war to writing two books that chronicled the era. One was History of the Revolution in South Carolina, and the other was History of the American Revolution. In both, he described the action at King's Mountain. Some of the Americans were on horseback, others on foot. Some behind trees and others exposed. None of them were under the restraints of military discipline. The Americans assaulted the hilltop from three directions. They fired from everywhere, and one group made a direct attack. Major Ferguson jumped on his horse and personally led a counterattack against the first group of assaulters, whom a loyalist militia said looked like devils from the infernal regions, tall, raw-boned, sinewy, with long, matted hair. Ferguson and his militiamen succeeded in stopping the first direct attack. Ferguson, with great boldness, attacked the assailants with fixed bayonets and compelled them to successfully retire. But they only fell back a little way, and getting behind trees and rocks renewed their fire in almost every direction. According to Ramsey, a second group of Americans made a direct attack. Major Ferguson and his men pivoted and repelled the second attack. Then, a third group of over-mountain men attacked from a different direction. Again, Ferguson and his men fought back the assaults with bayonets. But even though they had halted multiple direct attacks, they took fire from all angles. And, as Ramsey noted, though he used the wrong rank for Ferguson, which was a common problem in books of the time, as often as one of the American parties was driven back, another returned to their station. Resistance on the part of Colonel Ferguson was in vain, but his unconquerable spirit refused to surrender. Ramsey praised Ferguson several times in both books, but the Major was in an unwinnable situation. Ferguson stayed on his horse and fought until he fell. After having repulsed a succession of adversaries pouring in over their fire from new directions, this distinguished officer received a mortal wound. Major Ferguson fell off his horse. One of his boots caught in a stirrup and his horse dragged him for some distance. In a popular version of Major Ferguson's final moments, he was captured after his horse was corralled and he was told to surrender. In response, 
he pulled his pistol and shot a Patriot militiaman. Then the other Patriot militiaman shot him eight times and killed him. However it happened, Ferguson's death signaled the end of the battle. No chance of escape being left and all prospect of successful resistance being at an end. The contest was ended by the submission of the survivors. The collection of over-mountain men and South Carolina militia units killed or wounded scores of Loyalist militia defenders and captured the rest. The success was stunning and unexpected. Dr. David Ramsey wrote, It was scarcely possible for any event to have happened in the present juncture of affairs more unfavorable to the view of Lord Cornwallis than this reverse of fortune. The fall of Colonel Ferguson, who possessed superior talents as a partisan, was no small loss to the royal cause. When American Commander-in-Chief George Washington heard about Kings Mountain, he said to his army, The crude, spirited, hardy, determined volunteers who crossed the mountains served as proof of the spirit and resources of the country. Thomas Jefferson called it the turn of the tide of success. And he was right. It had been rough for the Americans since the victories at Saratoga exactly three years earlier. Since then, yes, the Americans had lost but regained Philadelphia, and the French had joined the war as an American ally. But the British still controlled New York City, and they had burned towns in Connecticut. In the South, they controlled Charleston and Savannah, and they currently occupied Charlotte, North Carolina. The Americans had lost numerous villages and outposts in the back country, and they had suffered a devastating defeat at Camden. But the American victory at Kings Mountain, which happened 52 days after the defeat at Camden, had an immediate impact and started the domino effect. One of the big reasons why the British chose to concentrate so much effort on the southern colonies was that the royal governors of those colonies had been confident that lots of their citizens were loyal to England. And more importantly, that those loyalists would rise up and join the British army if the army proved it was making a serious push in the South. Well, the army had arrived and had made a serious push and most of the loyalists stayed home. Some local volunteers joined the British army, to be sure, but not nearly as many as the British hoped or expected. The royal governors may have been right that large populations in the South favored a continued union with England, but they didn't favor it enough to fight for it or die for it. At Kings Mountain, an army of a thousand men, mostly local loyalists, had been beaten. That was a powerful disincentive for others to show their support for the crown. As Dr. Ramsey put it, The total rout of the Royalists who had joined Colonel Ferguson operated as a check on their future exertions. The same timid caution which made them averse from joining their countrymen and opposing the claims of Great Britain restrained them from risking any more support for the Royal cause. From this time forward, many of them waited events and reserved themselves till the British Army, by their own unassisted efforts, should gain a decided superiority. Ramsay was right, though it was all relative. 
Despite British victories at Charleston, Savannah, and Camden, and a host of smaller places, Southern colonists did not join the British Army in the numbers that the British had hoped for. But that didn't mean no one joined. Several thousand did join the Loyalist militia that fought with the British, but it wasn't nearly enough to give the British a sizable advantage. That meant General Cornwallis was going to have to change his plan. He abandoned his plan to keep marching through North Carolina to continue the conquest of the whole region. He retreated back down to South Carolina and established a position for his winter camp about 30 miles from the Camden battlefield. And at that point, it wasn't just the rugged, over-mountain men in the West who worried him. There was a militia leader in the East, between Cornwallis and the coast, who was wreaking all kinds of havoc. His name was Francis Marion, and he was the primary inspiration for Mel Gibson's character in the Hollywood movie The Patriot. Marion grew up on a plantation in Berkeley County, South Carolina, straight north of Charleston. Around 15 years old, he survived a shipwreck in the West Indies. At 25, he fought in the French and Indian War. He was a captain of one of three militia units from South Carolina. At the start of the war, the British made alliance agreements with the Cherokee Nation in the southern colonies. But by 1760, the Cherokee were rebelling against the British for not holding up their end of the agreements. The southern theater of the French and Indian War featured brutal battles between the British colonial forces and Cherokee warriors. In the movie The Patriot, the mythology that surrounds Mel Gibson's character stems from a battle at a place they call Fort Wilderness. Most of the story that Gibson tells about the event is fiction, but it was inspired by a real engagement. In March 1760, Cherokee warriors laid siege to a British outpost called Fort Loudoun that was about 30 miles south of the present-day city of Knoxville, Tennessee. By August, the British soldiers and their families in the fort were starving and suffering in the sweltering heat and humidity of summer. They surrendered the fort and began the long march toward the closest settlements, which were in an area that is now the western edge of South Carolina. The day after 240 people, including women and children, started their march, 700 Cherokee warriors attacked them. The warriors killed 29 and took the rest prisoner. In response, South Carolina sent its militia units to hunt down the Cherokee. Francis Marion and his comrades conducted guerrilla raids and savage ambushes in the backcountry, using the same tactics that had been perfected by the Cherokee. Now, 20 years later, Marion was back in charge of another militia unit that was using the same tactics against the British. Marion had fought in the Battle of Sullivan's Island in the summer of 1776, when British General Henry Clinton tried to capture Charleston. Marion had participated in the Americans' failed siege of Savannah in 1779. And now he was leading his own men in the woods and swamps between the British bases at Charleston and Camden. As British General Cornwallis settled into his winter camp near Camden, he needed someone to find and stop Francis Marion on his eastern flank. For the mission, Cornwallis turned to his trusted cavalry commander, Bannister Tarleton. For several days, Lieutenant Colonel Tarleton played a game of cat and mouse with Marion. 
Sometimes Tarleton chased Marion. Other times Tarleton tried to lure Marion into a position from which Marion would have to attack British forces. Neither tactic produced a result for Tarleton. Then in early November 1780, a month after the Battle of Kings Mountain, Tarleton learned the location of Marion's unit from an escaped prisoner. Tarleton and his horse soldiers spent seven hours chasing Marion's men across 26 miles of territory. When Marion and his unit rushed into a swamp, Tarleton gave up the hunt in disgust. He's been quoted as saying, As for this damned old fox, the devil himself couldn't catch him. Francis Marion became known as the Swamp Fox, and the threat to the British Army from the east remained viable. So, by November 1780, American forces had won at Kings Mountain, forced General Cornwallis to retreat from North Carolina down to South Carolina, and evaded Cornwallis's most capable cavalry officer. And then, the next American general arrived to take charge of the remaining soldiers in the South. American Commander-in-Chief George Washington had appointed Major General Nathaniel Greene to replace Major General Horatio Gates as the commander of the Southern Department. Greene was one of Washington's most spirited and resourceful generals, but it took two months for Greene to travel from West Point on the Hudson River in New York to Charlotte, North Carolina, to join the Southern Army. During those two months, while the Battle of Kings Mountain and Tarleton's pursuit of Francis Marion were happening, General Horatio Gates was rebuilding the American Southern Army after the loss of the Battle of Camden. One of Gates's important moves was to recruit his old friend, Daniel Morgan, to return to the Army. Morgan had been one of two battlefield commanders, along with Benedict Arnold, who helped win the battles of Saratoga three years earlier. Gates was the overall commander, so he received most of the credit. But Morgan and Arnold led the charge on the field. Morgan felt he had been passed up for promotion by George Washington, and he resigned from the army in protest. Gates convinced Congress to give Morgan the promotion to brigadier general, and then Gates convinced his old friend to join him in the Southern Theater. General Morgan's role would be to command a new unit of light infantry. The men of the unit would be some of the best soldiers available. They would carry very little equipment, very few supplies, and they would not be encumbered by wagons. The unit was designed to move fast and strike fast. Morgan was a hard-charging commander, and he was the perfect leader for such a unit. For Morgan's second-in-command, Gates chose Lieutenant Colonel John Eager Howard, one of the best officers of the Maryland regiments. Gates had decided to settle the bulk of his army down for the winter, but he wanted Morgan's light infantry to remain active. That strategy would hold even when General Gates was replaced by General Nathaniel Greene in early December. When Greene arrived in North Carolina, there was a peaceful transition of power. Gates was out, Greene was in, and Morgan's column, known as the Flying Army for its ability to act with speed, was sent to the western flank to begin operations. It would take about a month for Morgan's flying army to test itself against the full might of the British Army. And in between, one of the most notorious chapters of American history emerged from the shadows. 
Benedict Arnold, one of the early heroes of the American Revolution, had switched sides, and he was now leading British troops against American troops. By 1780, Benedict Arnold was totally disaffected. He had repeatedly played critical roles in American successes, but he had been denied the credit he deserved and passed over for promotion. In 1775, he and Ethan Allen's Green Mountain Boys from Vermont had captured Fort Ticonderoga. Seven months later, at the end of 1775, Arnold had failed to capture the Canadian city of Quebec, but he rebounded in the fall of 1776. Arnold was an experienced sailor, and he knew that the British Navy could sail from its base in Quebec, down the St. Lawrence River, down the Richelieu River, and straight into Lake Champlain on the border of New York and Vermont. From Lake Champlain, the British could stage incursions into New York from the north. George Washington and the main army had lost the Battle of Brooklyn and had been pushed all the way off of Manhattan Island. They were giving ground to the British main army every day in southern New York. If they allowed the British to attack from the north, it would be disastrous. So, Arnold helped patch together a makeshift navy in Lake Champlain, and the British tried to attack the lake just as he had expected. A furious naval battle erupted, and the British ships pummeled the American fleet, which was a generous label for the hodgepodge of ships that Arnold had been able to cobble together. It was an American loss, but it successfully halted the British advance. One year later, in the fall of 1777, Arnold was instrumental in the American victories at Saratoga. He and Daniel Morgan were the battlefield commanders who personally led the charges during the fighting. The Americans won decisive victories in two engagements. They wiped out the British army that had moved down from Quebec, and their success prompted France to join the American cause. But then Major General Horatio Gates claimed all the glory for himself and both Benedict Arnold and Daniel Morgan felt spurned. Morgan was so mad that he quit the army, only to be lured back three years later by his former commander, Horatio Gates. Arnold stayed in the army, but he had suffered a serious leg wound at Saratoga. The British had captured Philadelphia right before the first engagement at Saratoga, but they gave it up nine months later. Since Arnold was still recovering from his wound, George Washington appointed him military governor of Philadelphia. And that was when things really started to change for Benedict Arnold. Arnold had been a successful merchant before the war, but the war ruined his business and left him on the verge of bankruptcy. As military governor of Philadelphia, he used his position to make money through a few illicit schemes. They may not have been illegal, but they were probably shady to use our modern parlance. The money flowed in, and he started living a lavish lifestyle in Philadelphia. He hosted dinners and went to parties, and that was how he met 18-year-old Peggy Shippen. She would become his wife and his gateway to the British spy network. Peggy Shippen was nearly 20 years younger than Benedict Arnold, but they were married a few months after they met. Peggy's father was an influential judge who portrayed himself as neutral during the war, but he had loyalist leanings. As Arnold grew closer to Peggy and her family and then married her, 
he was battling Congress over corruption charges from his money-making schemes. He was already mad at Congress because he felt he'd been passed over for promotion, and he had spent his own money to help the war effort, which nearly bankrupted him, and Congress refused to reimburse him. Now they were investigating him, and he faced a court-martial on four charges. He welcomed the chance to defend himself, but it took eight months for the court-martial proceeding to happen. And during that time, the steady grind of frustration and disillusionment wore on him. Sometime during that period, a friend of the Shippen family reconnected with them. When the British had controlled Philadelphia, Major John Andre had been a social companion of Peggy Shippen's. Andre had left when the British Army abandoned Philadelphia in June 1778. And then, ten months later, right around the time Peggy married Benedict Arnold, Major John Andre became chief of spies for the British Army. As Arnold's situation darkened, John Andre contacted him, likely through the Shippen family. For months, Andre and Arnold traded secret letters that were written in code, and Arnold's wife Peggy acted as a courier. After some convincing, Arnold agreed to start providing information to the British in exchange for the promise of a handsome reward. He was not fully committed to being a British agent, but that time was drawing near, and the breaking point would be the court-martial. A military court determined that Arnold should be sanctioned for two of the charges against him. In January 1780, the court recommended to Congress that Arnold receive an official reprimand from General George Washington. A month later, Congress approved. On April 6, 1780, George Washington wrote an official reprimand for Benedict Arnold. Arnold was stunned. He'd spent years sinking blood, sweat, and money into the revolution. He had followed orders when required, and he had also shown good initiative and leadership skills on his own. And now he had been publicly reprimanded and humiliated by the commander-in-chief. But even as Arnold was outraged by the reprimand, he shouldn't have been feeling like an innocent man who had been wronged. He did make money through some off-the-books schemes. He was guilty of those things. And he had been secretly providing information about American war efforts to the British for months. He was in the middle of a slow-moving defection long before the results of the court-martial. But the official reprimand sent him over the edge. George Washington knew the reprimand had been harsh, and he privately told Arnold that he would try to help him out. But by that point, the damage was done. Arnold was fully committed to switching sides. In his new role as an undercover British spy, he knew what the British wanted more than anything, the piece of ground that George Washington considered the most important in the entire country, the fort at West Point. West Point guarded a crucial spot on the Hudson River north of New York City. Washington considered the fort to be the key to owning the Hudson. If the British took West Point, they could control the Hudson. If they controlled the Hudson, they could potentially control the entire North. Benedict Arnold lobbied for command at West Point, and in August 1780, two weeks before the Battle of Camden in South Carolina, Washington gave it to him. 
Arnold moved his wife Peggy and his infant son up to the West Point area and immediately began weakening the fort to hand it over to the British. He let the defenses fall into disrepair, and he reduced the supplies and manpower that kept the fort functioning. But everything unraveled in less than six weeks. In late September 1780, Benedict Arnold and John Andre, chief of spies for the British, scheduled a meeting to make final preparations for the British to sail up the Hudson from their bases in New York and capture the fort. British Commander-in-Chief Henry Clinton had committed most of his troops to the Southern Theater, but he still occupied and made his headquarters in New York. He had approved a deal to give Arnold 20,000 pounds if the capture of West Point was successful, and a generalship in the British Army either way. But then, at the end of September, it all went wrong. Arnold and Andre had their final meeting. But then Andre was captured by American soldiers on his way back to British headquarters. Andre was carrying plans for the fort at West Point and safe passage documents that were written by Benedict Arnold. The American chief of spies put it all together and informed George Washington that they had a serious problem. Benedict Arnold was a traitor. Arnold learned in the nick of time that his deception had been discovered and he fled West Point on the ship that had delivered John Andre. Arnold sailed down to British headquarters in New York, and George Washington allowed Arnold's wife and son to return to their family home in Philadelphia. British commander Henry Clinton kept his promise to give Arnold a general's commission. And so, in December 1780, Benedict Arnold completed the craziest year that anyone had experienced during the Revolution. Twelve months earlier, in January 1780, he was military governor of Philadelphia. Then he was court-martialed and stripped of his position. In April, he was reprimanded by George Washington. In August, he was commander of West Point. In September, his treason was discovered. And in December, he was a British general who was about to lead British troops against American troops in Richmond, Virginia. The Americans had won the Battle of Kings Mountain in South Carolina two months earlier, and Francis Marion had eluded Bannister Tarleton one month earlier. The war had fully engulfed North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, and now it was spreading to Virginia. Up to that time, Virginia had been a literal middle ground between the major battles in the North and the major battles in the South. But as a Southern colony in close proximity to the Northern colonies, it was important for the British to establish a foothold in Virginia. Arnold's job was to clear the way for the conquest of Virginia, even as the British commander in the South, General Cornwallis, retreated back down to South Carolina. Benedict Arnold's goal was to weaken the Continental forces in Virginia so that Cornwallis's army could eventually conquer the colony. Arnold's mission was to capture or destroy as many plantations, warehouses, and gunpowder depots as possible, and the city of Richmond had all three. The governor of Virginia, a wealthy 37-year-old planter named Thomas Jefferson, had named Richmond the new capital of the colony. Jefferson believed Richmond would be easier to defend because it was further inland than the old capital of Williamsburg, which made it less vulnerable to attacks by the British Navy. New British General Benedict Arnold proved Jefferson wrong. In late December 1780, 
Arnold sailed up the James River with a force of 1,600 men, a combination of British regulars, Hessians, and American loyalists. On his way, his troops destroyed plantations and warehouses along the river and captured American soldiers. Arnold's men arrived in Richmond in early January 1781. An American militia unit of just 200 men met Arnold's force with musket fire, but Arnold's soldiers chased them into the surrounding forests. After that, General Arnold and his men marched into Richmond with little resistance. Arnold set up his headquarters in a tavern and wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson. Arnold offered to leave the city untouched in exchange for Richmond's supply of tobacco and military goods. Jefferson refused. In response, Arnold's men burned homes, businesses, warehouses, and government buildings. The Virginia Assembly fled to Charlottesville, and Jefferson fled to his plantation, Monticello. A new force of about 200 American militiamen started to chip away at Arnold's advantage. Over the course of about three weeks, they drove Arnold and his men out of Richmond and down to Portsmouth on the coast, although Arnold destroyed more plantations and warehouses along the way. Arnold's campaign against Richmond ended on January 19, 1781. Neither he nor anyone else in Virginia, or up in New York or New Jersey, knew that a major battle had been fought in the low country of South Carolina just two days earlier. And no one could have guessed that, despite all odds, the war would be over in 10 months. Next time on Mission History, a new American battle plan pays dividends in South Carolina. The British Southern Army chases the American Southern Army from South Carolina through North Carolina to the Virginia border. And then British General Charles Cornwallis makes a fateful decision. He can lead his army to one of two cities to rest and regroup, and he chooses the wrong one. The end is near next time on Mission History. This series of Mission History is a production of Black Barrel Media, Q Code, and the Historic Camden Foundation. In this episode, you heard Jeremy Schwartz as Dr. David Ramsey, Daniel Johnson as the Virginia Militia author, and Robert Newmark Jones as Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton. The series was researched, written, and directed by me, Chris Wimmer. It was produced by myself and Mandy Wimmer. Our executive producers are Carrie Briggs for the Historic Camden Foundation and Steve Wilson and Dave Henning for Q-Code. Marketing lead for Q-Code was Ellie Kotopish. Original music by Rob Valier. Featured violin by Kevin Huang. Historical advisors were Owen Lurie, historian with the Maryland State Archives, and Jim Pycooch, South Carolina historian and author. Their help was invaluable. Extra special thanks goes to the team at the Historic Camden Foundation. Carrie, Stacy, Margaret, Catherine, Will, Lance, Len, Davey, Liz, Barbara, Arthur, and Marley. Thanks for listening.
On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.